0: good day no matter where you are in this crazy world welcome to the center of the field with me richard keith latman and as always let's get right to this now in a recent viral video an unidentified white woman in line at a grocery store in oregon of course dressed in a floral romper with black knee-high boots overheard a black woman's phone conversation now she believed this black woman was trying to sell food stamps illegally and the exchange became heated And the white man was told in no uncertain terms to mind her own business. And she said, oh, this is my business because I pay my taxes. And then she said something that, quite frankly, made me roll on the ground in laughter. We are going to build this wall. Now, it's really not that funny. And it's not an oddly timed statement about her views on immigration. It was a declaration of her whiteness and by extension, her view of who belonged in this country. She may as well have called the black woman the N-word. She didn't. She called the police instead. And before you think that this was a, a video of police violence or another example of some white person being crazy, in so many ways, this argument between these two women captured the soft bigotry that has from beneath the surface enabled American public policy and individual behavior for decades. This woman, years after the departure of what Newt Gindridge called in 2011, quote, the most successful food stamp president in American history, saw a member of Mitt Romney's, quote, 47% who are dependent upon government who pay no income tax. This white woman witnessed Ronald Reagan's, quote, welfare queen. But now, (laughs) now she had a new phrase, build this wall. And she had the confidence that King Trump, the president of the United States and commander-in-chief of our armed forces would support her and that the problem would soon be as if resolved as soon as America was great again. It is this type of outburst, my friends, through the blaring and easy to denounce, that provides many Americans with a familiar experience. The moral comfort of having someone else to blame for our nation's racial struggles. If only we, the non-racists, could kick her out or lock her up. Now, it's relatively easy to blame our current struggles on those loud racists who have been emboldened by the election of King Trump, but this is typical American racial melodrama. Call it for what it is, we need easily marked villains and we love happy endings. This recital of condemnation all too often hides the messiness of our own moral lives, that we aren't absolved of our complicity simply by the politicians we support especially since the American public so rarely pushes for policies that enact our supposed commitment to racial equality. The fact is that Americans have grown comfortable with racism, resting just below the surface of our politics, to be activated whenever a politician or a community needs it, or some racist incident happens so we can exhume it only for us to bury it once again. What has resulted, my friends, is an illusion that blinds us to what was actually happening right in front of our noses and in our heads. We believed that our country had become less racist because we were not as brazen as we once were. Now, President Trump shattered that illusion. He rode race, long the third rail of American politics, straight to the White House. And he challenged Obama's citizenship. He called Mexicans rapists and criminals. He proposed to ban all Muslims from entering the country. He insisted on the need for law and order. He argued that immigration was changing, and I repeat, changing the character of the United States and openly courted white, what he called nationalists, what I call supremacists. He dog-whistled in a way that let no one feign deafness. Trump promised to dismantle Obamacare, provide a, quote, beautiful alternative, to make Mexico pay for, quote, the wall, and to restore America's manufacturing greatness, all the while providing jobs and tax relief. His pledges spoke directly to the forgotten American sense of victimhood that had been left behind during the Obama years and that his way of life was under threat. Trump exists in a sweet spot between the soft bigotry of self-contradictory American liberals and the loud racism of those who shout obscenities and demand that Latino people go back to Mexico, all stuck in an economic system that can't reconcile the startling gap between the top 1% and those busting their butts to make ends meet. He sits right there amid the mess and the false promises and often with a smirk on his face. But King Trump, he's not some nefarious character. I mean, we've seen him before. He embodies the hatreds and fears that have been part of America's politics since its founding, and that erupt with every rapid change in our society and the world. He stands in a tradition of American politics that can be traced to Strom Thurmond's 1948 Dixiecrat run for the presidency, Wallace's bid for the presidency in 68 and 72, and Pat Buchanan's runs in 92 and 96. Each of these men could move a crowd with their homespun rhetoric and their willingness to speak the, quote, unvarnished truth with little regard to the consequences. And each sought to give voice to a deeply felt sense of white victimhood as the nation grappled with significant social transformation, be it the end of the Jim Crow South or the volcano of the 60s revolution. Now, despite this, we heard over and over again from pundits and politicians, including Democrats, That racism couldn't explain the counties that voted for Donald Trump and Barack Obama. That more attention needed to be given to the dire circumstances of the poor working white men and women. That Trump's election was white working class, often rural backlash. And what was needed was to focus on middle America. This criticism coalesced with the ongoing obsession about what, what, what white suburban America was thinking. All the while, they derided the president's use, use of explicit racism as opposed to the implicit kind that they were endorsingly, like, Knowingly or not, the problem was not and is not named Trump. It's us. Our narrow focus on explicit racists misses a development that explains our current moment. That much of our struggle with race today is bound in the false innocence of suburban bliss and the manic effort to protect it, no matter the costs. In the late 60s and 70s, for example, millions of homeowners in the nation's suburbs, primarily white, for the most part, racially segregated communities subsidized by state policies, rejected efforts to desegregate schools through busing, and vehemently defended the demographic makeup of their neighborhood. Now, these were not people shouting slurs at the top of their lungs, although some did. These were courageous defenders of their quality of life. Segregated life, that was. These were people of the so-called silent majority who insisted on free market and embraced a colorblind ideology to maintain their racially exclusive enclaves. Their anti busing crusades taxpayer revolts, and insistence on neighborhood schools cut across party lines, and it helped shape national national politics. Democrats and Republicans appealed to the interests of these voters, and many turned their back on the agenda of the civil rights movement. Now, the suburban politics of middle class warfare charted a middle course between the open racism of the extreme right and the agenda of the civil rights movement based on an ethos of colorblind individualism that accepted the principles of equal opportunity in the law, but refused the continuance of American action policies designed to overcome metropolitan structures of inequality. It's a fancy way of saying we said one thing in the courts and we did one thing in the home. Suburban white America voiced its belief in racial equality, but relentlessly held on to the white class privilege and all of the policies and structures that made it possible. I mean, many social scientists would call this new racism or laissez-faire racism in which white Americans failed to adequately and actively address racial inequality. And in doing so, they maintained the status quo. White people's expressed racial attitudes by most measures have become better. And according to public opinion surveys, most Americans don't hold the views of Strom Thurmond any more than 1948 or George Wallace in 68. They believe in integrated schools and reject segregated public transportation and the like. In the early 40s, according to Harvard, 68% of white Americans supported formal segregation. And by the 90s, 96% of white Americans believed that black and white children should attend the same school. So that gulf in perception is lowering but here's something funny that's really not funny in 2017 a study was held by the public religion research institute and it said that 87 percent of black americans say black people face a lot of discrimination today and this is 2017. only 49 percent of white americans felt the same that disconnect right there that disconnect in our stated commitments and our practice is so great that we can't even agree what the problem is. This is the hazy middle ground of the silent majority. Now that same study amazingly found that 43% of Republicans said there's a lot of discrimination against whites and of those people only 27% of those same Republicans said that there's a lot of discrimination against blacks and that unfortunately makes sense. Since the mid-20th century, Republicans have made a living as the party of white grievance. Even as it puts forward the pro-growth policies and ardently defends the benefits of small government, it says and it does different things. Now, what is less explored is those fancy Democrats, those liberal bastions of our society. The recognition of the volatility of race led many in the party, especially those who founded the Democratic Leadership Council in 85 to work hard to win back the white middle class voters by addressing their concerns. And ever since, Democratic strategists and politicians have been in hot pursuit of the so-called Reagan Democrats and aim to speak, especially after Trump's election, to what they generally described as working class America, code word, working class America. Here they rejected bad identity politics in favor of politics that did not alienate the working class code word. Bill Clinton's strategy of triangulation reflected a cynical co-op of what Republicans believed to drive the party to the center-right while taking black voters, among others, for granted. And in a way, Hillary Clinton duplicated that in 2016 when she tried to court Bush Republicans who said they couldn't vote for Trump. And meanwhile, as politicians courted the ideal suburban voter, racial inequality persisted And black uh, political participation was distorted. It was just assumed that African Americans would support the Democrats. Americans experienced the confusing effects of this pervasive contradiction between our stated commitments and our practices with the election of Barack Obama. For many, Obama's ascendance signaled the end of entitlement for whites. But instead, his pregnancy led a resurgence of white resentment that set the stage for Trump we experienced the Tea Party. And we saw several states enact strict voter laws that disproportionately impacted minorities. Obama proved our national commitment to racial equality. The vehement hatred of Obama exposed the illusion for what it was. Now all this talk about equality serves as a kind of cover for the actual practices that continue to reproduce Differential Outcomes for Black and Brown People and Protect White Class Advantage. Trump can promote the lie that his policies alone have produced the lowest black unemployment rate in history. And it's probably true. But he gives no credit to the Obama administration's policies before him, and he pays little attention to the fact that black people work really hard. He is silent about what would happen to the numbers if we include eh, those that are incarcerated. Trump only cites numbers to deepen the illusion and justify the dismissal of claims of racial inequality as simple cries of victimhood. And it turns out what we do reveals what we truly believe. And no matter the public proclamations of our commitment to a more perfect union, the fact of our daily lives in this country speak volumes. Studies reveal that racial bias, bias in policing and sentencing and rates of incarceration in differential punishment in schools, the, persist, the persistence of residential segregation and its castating effect on life cycles of black and brown and Asians and Latinos. In, in however you want to call this, if an African-American or Hispanic adult earns a college degree, he or she will still financially lag behind a white American with the same exact degree from the same exact school, graduated at the same exact time. But all of this was the case before Trump was elected. It's not enough to yell at Donald Trump. We must once and for all confront the silent majority. Even if until now we didn't realize who they are. Because we are all them all of us that are listening to this podcast right now who haven't done something to change this, we must confront ourselves. And the desire to distance ourselves maybe from Trump or maybe to include yourself with Trump fits perfectly with the American insistence that we not see ourselves for who we actually are. We try to evade the historical wounds, the individual pain, and the lasting effects. The lynched relative, the buried son killed at the hands of the police, and the millions and millions that are locked away in American prison, the children languishing in failed schools, the smothering concentrated poverty passed down from generation to generation, and the generalized indifference to the lives of the Americans in the shadows of the American dream are generally understood as exceptions to the, to the American story and not the rule. Our gaze is averted. We, congr- we congratulate ourselves for how far we have come, and we ruthlessly blame those in the shadows for their plight in life. While our innocence is secured, we feel no guilt in enjoying what we have earned by our own merit, in defending our own right to educate our own children in the best schools, and in demanding that we be judged by our ability alone. In this illusion, Trump has to be seen as singular. Otherwise, he reveals something terrible about us. Remember, we need a villain. You don't want to see yourself in Trump because that continues the lie. At some point, we must finally reject the lie. The longing for a time when matters were simpler and their angst over lost superiority of people of other races have made us folk, us white folk, feel like we're going to disappear. In 2045, America will be a majority-minority nation. And this is destiny. The mere fact that we won't be a minority does not guarantee the country will suddenly become a more racially just society. Saddam Hussein ruled ruthlessly over Iraq with only 6% of the people. But something fundamental is changing. As a country, we have been at the crossroads before. The Civil War. Reconstitution, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement. We found ourselves with a choice to be otherwise. In each movement, in each moment, no matter the possibilities in front of us or the significant changes in our social imaginations, the country held tightly to its prejudices and its unseeming belief the value of the silent majority. See, the only thing that King Trump actually broke was he didn't keep it quiet. He has unwittingly cracked that rule where you don't talk about racism, where you don't talk about race at all, and you accept policies and positions that stoke the flame, but never put it out. What has for so long been hidden or willfully ignored is now in the open. Americans are going to have to decide whether or not this is a country that will remain racist. I I guess we've had to decide this for a long time, but... It's time now to make that decision. We will have to avoid this trap of placing our burden of national sins on the shoulders of Donald Trump. It's simply not his fault. We have to address not just the nasty words, but also the policies and the practices. We need to look inward. I hate to say Trump is us. Or better, he's you. And by the irony of history, All African-American, brown, and Latino minorities, their fate and their children's fate are bound with you. Now, can we clear this? Can we clear the space in our minds to debate states' rights to argue about the necessity of a social safety net? Can we clear space in our mind to haggle about policing prisons? Or maybe the importance of public education without the undertow of race? Or can we not have those discussions and just rely on bad faith to pretend it doesn't exist? I'm convinced that if we are to imagine a country as a genuinely multiracial democracy, we have to tell ourselves a better story about who we are, how we ended up here, and how we keep returning here. No more Pollyannish tales about the inherent greatness of America, Ours is a history of not just obvious monsters, but also of communities with nice picket fences and good schools and concerning comforts that doesn't want to change. I told you we'd be a minority. White people would be a minority by 49. You got to change now. Make no debate. There is a new civil rights movement and it has racial justice at its core. Now, this civil rights movement is going to be very different than the first one. There's tools like the Internet, social media. You know, we have scores of activists of all of all colors, white, race, everybody. Talkers and fighters, scientists and artists devoted to truth and justice, finding their strengths and their voices and doing what they do best. And sometimes acting with beautiful collective purpose, sometimes acting individual in moments of despair and grief. We have Black Lives Matters at the center of this black movement. And while I could do a whole episode on that group, I believe at its heart it's a peaceful movement that can at times appear racist and at times appear compassionate. When our behavior impacts others in harmful ways, we should want to know, even if we didn't intend to hurt someone. The challenge of racism today is opening up non-defensively to how we are impacting others regardless of our intentions this isn't easy but this is the work that's required of well-intentioned people being a part of the solution and not the problem and it starts with the understanding and working on ourselves all of us may engage in some spirited discussion about this that expressing our opinions or you know sharing facts or news tidbit with each other and everyone has an opinion and that's okay If someone brings up white privilege or institutional racism, we have to acknowledge it in some superficial way. Of course, I'm so lucky my daughter gets to go to a good school and so on. But then, at some point, we can't just lapse into silence and forget that every advantage that we have leads to a disadvantage for someone else. This feeling is profound. And while some of us have found ways to meaningfully engage the vast majority of well-intentioned people of all races are horrified at what happens around us they don't know what to do they don't know how to help so what do they do they do nothing they go back to their work their families their lives and they feel lucky they can and yet this doesn't feel right and explains why i'm talking about this right now we need action We need change. We all know we can do better. And just behind this defensiveness, just note that there is despair, hopeless, and fear. On the opposite side of that, of course, is what we all care about. After all, people don't become defensive or fearful unless it matters to them. So if you're someone who cares about justice, equality, and compassion, then it makes sense to make this work And make it be challenging. Because something real is at stake and that's what makes it important. The current moment requires us to move beyond the binary of racist or non-racist. Let's forget labels. And instead challenges each of us to notice when our actions are out of line with our declared values. See, when your actions and your words meet, that's where it's important. I think we have an image of our mind of who a racist is, you know, especially a, a white racist, you know, he's a guy in the South, working class job, maybe he drives a truck, but it's actually not true at all. According to the Pew Institute, most racists are across the income spectrum and across the general, of the country. You can't look at any one specific criteria for any race and find racism attached to any specific cause or event. Now, Again, I got to reinforce not to blame the Don for any of this because all he's done is make the idea of being white a little more taboo. You thought the opposite, didn't you? For the most part, I think Trump has made the most of his base of followers feel pretty secure in their identity. He catered to them for day one. And as you know, he continues to double down. But a lot of us now are almost scared to be like Trump. I mean, you don't have to look more than his strong stance on the border wall. Immigration is a particularly important topic to his base, and Trump has continued to make that a central issue to the national political agenda, even in the face of the fact that we don't really have a border crisis. For white North Americans, nevertheless, coming to terms with white privilege exacts a price. As Alec Baldwin said years ago, I'm not used to quoting him, it's not really a black revolution that's upsetting the country. What's upsetting the country is the sense of its own identity. For some folks, opposition to immigration doesn't necessarily come as a result of disliking Latinos. It's rooted in something different. Which is that they think immigration is a threatening American culture but a particular flavor of American culture, one which happens to be defined by Anglo-Saxon Protestant heritage. Somebody might might just be opposed to immigration because they don't dislike Latinos, but there's a different component that's going in the minds of a lot of people. It's not, I dislike Latino people. It's, I don't like the idea that the country that I envision, the country that I grew up in, the place that is defined by my culture, is somehow threatened by this new group i don't like the idea that we're talking about spanish being a prevalent language other than english and it's about the erosion of the ability to define american mainstream as what it was when they grew up is that racism now truth be told i don't spend a whole lot of time around people who say things like i hate spanish or you know white culture is dying out and i I don't want to overstate my knowledge about what they actually believe but i think the people you hear say things like that are probably racist but there are a lot of people in the middle of the spectrum who don't hold particularly strong racial attitudes but at the same time they're not particularly comfortable with their country becoming more diverse it's in part because they're worried about the status of their group for sure and the loss of privileges that they have and if you think about racism In part, it's about structural inequality. Like if we go over to Europe, in England, there's a ton of resentment towards European immigrants from places like Poland, and they're white. Now, perhaps they don't face as much bigotry as the immigrants from Pakistan or India, but there's a ton of discrimination against them. It's the same reason. Here in America, ethnicities don't matter as much in the white community as they used to. I mean, be honest most of us in the United States aren't really splitting hairs that much. And probably a lot of people don't realize that when many of their ancestors immigrated to the United States, they weren't considered white. When Italians originally landed here, they weren't considered white. There is this assumption now that people from Europe are white and always have been. And we know that's just not true. So there are are two forces at play in American political life. One is that you can race base race bait and attract the racist. And the other is you can attract people who aren't necessarily racist, but are worried about their group. Sometimes I think the most insidious thing. Is the latter, because the risk here is that people now think it's okay to talk about being proud to be in their racial group. And. White people never did that before, and so they're, they're now borrowing that strategy from people of color. It's actually a way of trying to maintain a racial hierarchy. It just sounds more palatable. Like all of a sudden, a white supremacist has become a white nationalist. When did that happen? It's strange, but it seems that our first black president may have made more impact on our current king. Whites who score really high in pride were less likely to vote for Obama in 2012. I don't think that's a secret. So, white identity mattered politically at a national level before Trump ever entered the scene. And we all know that. Obama won because he was able to mobilize a coalition of people of color. He won because of all things that were happening in the country that were activating white voters. The, company, the, the country was becoming more racially diverse. In the movie, I can't believe I'm going to do this, in the movie Dancing with Wolves, 1991, Kevin Costner plays a white Union soldier stationed on the Indian frontier who undergoes a political transformation. He comes to realize that the native people that his militia intends to kill are not the uncivilized heathens that they were portrayed to be. In fact, they have a rich civilization in many ways superior to his. Thus, he realizes he is fighting on the wrong side. The remainder of the movie Chronicles is struggling to figure out what this realization means to me. And I can't believe I quoted that. Now, Dancing with Wolves was very politically flawed. But nonetheless, it revealed the significance of this awakened consciousness by winning an Academy Award. (laughs) I mean, Hollywood in 1991 was white as could be. And it gave an Academy Award to a movie that actually talked about racism in a way that white european culture wasn't superior so should we not be ready in 2019 to move beyond racial categories i doubt that this can be done anytime soon because the weight of too much history is rooted in these marked bodies with inscriptions that are very deep rather than attempting to erase these inscriptions or history, like they're trying to do in the South right now by removing statues, I think we need a period of reinscription to redescribe and re-understand what we see when we see race. It's fine to be proud to be white in 2019. It's fine to be proud to be black or love your Latino heritage. It's just not acceptable when that pride negatively impacts anyone else. I love the Red Sox. But when I, I would never, ever think of punching a Yankees fan when we beat them year after year after year. And while that's simplistic, maybe that's how race conversations in this country need to start. We are all different and unique. We all bring special traits and abilities. But in the end, we need to start acting like members of the global team. Every group, every color, and yes, I consider white a color, every gender or sexual orientation has a role in the world we dream really existed. Let those with courage, let those who fear not being shouted off their lecture in a street corner lead the way. Because the promised land isn't paved by our differences, but by the permanent ledger of our individual human narrative. It's time for a change. It's way, way beyond time. I'm Richard Keith Latman. Thank you for being in the center of the field. It's been fun. Let's do it again.